Hi, this is Kev Legs Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to say I'm now joined via Zoom with the, the wonders of modern technology, all the way from South Africa by Mr. Dan Patlansky. Dan, are you well? I'm excellent. I'm even better to be chatting to you today. Wow, you you smooth-talking devil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've made a bit of a name for yourself in the past few years, travelling all around the world. Are you still getting to grips with that? Well, it's it's a strange thing. It's been kind of like my my passion, I suppose, more than anything since I was a, a teenager to be able to just play guitar and sing for a living. Um, so, you know, it, it really was a dream come true to get a little bit of traction outside of South Africa because, you know, as you can imagine for, you know, most of my career, most of my gigs and fan base and, and radio play, all that stuff has been kind of localized to South Africa. So over the last couple of years to kind of break through a little bit to the rest of the world has really been a dream come true. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a strange thing for me, man. It's, it's, it's really weird that there's people in other countries listening to my music. It's, it's something that, that never gets old and, and, and ne- I can never quite comprehend. So it's, it's a strange thing. Well, you say you've had this dream from teenage years. What was it that first got you into music? Let's start there. Well, I think it was my parents, right? So as you, you know, South Africa is not necessarily known for music in general, and it's certainly not known for blues and blues rock uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But my, my parents were the ones that were these massive music listeners and fans. And, you know, they listened to music constantly around the house growing up, you know, in the car going down on holiday. So they got me interested in music and, and particularly into the blues and to the roots music thing because that's all they listened to. And, and when I say all they listen to, they listen to it constantly. So I almost had no choice, no saying in the matter. It was just <laughs> shut down my throat, but I'm so glad for it. So how did they get into it then? Well, so... I think, I mean, they're, they're like close to their 70s now. So they were, you know, around when that whole blues boom thing was around with Cream and, and you know, John Mayle and, you know, the Zeppelin days, yeah. all of that. And, that, you know, that was a big part of their, their childhood and their growing up. It was, you know, popular music for them. And, you know, they, they became somewhat obsessed with it, not necessarily playing it because none of them play an instrument, but just listening to it. And yeah, I mean, th- that just carried on. I mean, I-, I came into the picture and I, I think that obsession never, ever ceased. It, it-, it continued. You know, there was always music in the house. Um, so I think, you know, they got into it just from listening to, to records and oh, records they could get their hands on in South Africa in the height of uh, apartheid. You know what I mean? It was like, it wasn't like there was tons of music coming through you know, South Africa and our, in our, with our dark past. But, you know, you could import, you know, certain LPs and, and certain things. And, you know, that's how they kind of got their hands on the music. So what made you take that step further and become a musician? Well, you know what it was is, you know, I kind of, everything I heard was this guitar-based thing, right? You know, it was like, like 90% guitar-based. And um, I kind of fell in love with music myself, like properly, like, you know, probably at about 12, 13 years old and uh, really wanted a guitar. 
I found myself getting like kind of lost in in music, like more so than just listening to it. It's like playing the guitar, really just getting lost in it and spending hours and hours on on end just playing the guitar, trying to make music, trying to copy what I heard on on records, all this sort of thing. And it's it was always a dream, but I never thought it would ever be a reality because you know becoming a musician is kind of like you know becoming an actor. And I suppose it's your 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 parents' worst nightmares when their their son turns around at 15, 16 years old and says, I want to become a professional musician one day. It's 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 I don't think it filled them with 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 joy, the thought of that. But they were very supportive. And, um, you know, I just kind of continued at it. I, I, you know, I finished up school um, with no real plan in mind. And it just kind of slowly started to happen. I, st- I got some gigs. And it was easier in South Africa in those days because there wasn't a lot of blues bands. There wasn't a lot of blues rock happening in the late 90s. So it was kind of this, like, this open market for me to go into. And there was... It was a fan base of people my parents' age that were hungry for this music. And you know, I was very fortunate in that sense because I had this captive audience um, and I could really kind of hone in the craft, you know, gigging and I could earn a living out of it. Um, so it just kind of happened more by accident than by design. When you were learning, obviously that was back in, well, the early days of the internet, but you didn't have all the tutorials on hand like you do nowadays. So was it just a case of sat there listening to the records and trying to replicate? It, it was exactly that. I mean, this was before the internet days and what was the early internet days, I suppose. And there was no tutorials, there was no tabs, there was no music online. And, you know, I did it kind of the old school way of, you know, listening to a particular part of a song you know, a thousand times to try and hear what was going on. And you know, when you start off playing, your ears are, are fairly weak. So it takes, you know, a long time to be able to work out what you're hearing. But, you know, I find that's almost lacking with younger guys these days and younger musicians is is everything is learned by, you know, sight these days. It's not necessarily with your ears. And music is all about your ears. And um, it, it's so important to train your ears. And, and I, I couldn't have wished for a better way to develop my, my, my musical kind of hearing um, by just sitting there and painstakingly working out, you know, David Gilmore solos and Steve Ray Vaughan solos and B.B. King solos and Jimmy Page solos. It was, it really was probably the best education I could have ever wished for. While you were describing that, I just got this mental image of a sort of eureka moment when you got the first one and you went rushing out to show your parents or something. <laughs> it was that. It, it, it really was. I mean, one of the first solos I ever tried to work out by ear was um, the Shine On You Crazy Diamond solo. Oh, um, right. Pink Floyd, which we hear. And I've always loved that solo. I still love that solo to, to this day. And I, I remember like working through it and I think I worked out the first 30 seconds or something. And this was over a, probably a three, four week period of, of that, of the first solo of that song. And I was so overjoyed that that's exactly what happened. I, I ran out of my bedroom and kind of gathered my family and insisted they, 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 they sit in the room and hear what I've just what I, what I just kind of worked out. It was, it was one of those moments in my life that, that you kind of wish you could feel that, that, that feeling again of, yeah. of just pure excitement and joy just because you finally, you finally worked out a piece of music by ear and, and you did it right. It was, it was surreal. It really was. Yeah. Well, you touched on 
the hardships with um, apartheid of actually yeah. listening to the music. So obviously it must have been hard for you to get yourself out there. Yeah, well, you know, you know what it was was you know when you know apartheid ended in 1994. So um, I, I think I was 11 or 12 years old when, when, when it came to an end. And you know, to be honest with you, somewhat like oblivious to, to 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 that it was a thing. I mean, it was just like the way you grew up it was. You know, you didn't know it was a thing until you get older and you kind of educate yourself on the on 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 the past, and it was quite a shock. But what apartheid did was it kind of crippled the music scene in South Africa. There was virtually no original music, no original music venues. You know, the only way in apartheid you could possibly make money was kind of playing you know top forty kind of hits you know, with a backing track in the pub type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. That was the only way, that was like what a musician's job was. And yes, there was the odd band that did original stuff and did okay with it. But it was only like post-apartheid where, you know, original music and music beyond like top 40 started becoming popular and venues started um, accepting gigs like that and started putting on gigs like that. So in a sense, our music industry here in South Africa only really began post-apartheid it really really did and um you know I, I started not long after that probably 98 99 somewhere around there um so it was it was quite an uphill battle to find places to play but the, as i mentioned earlier i was blessed in the in the fact that there was so many people that were so hungry for roots music and there wasn't a lot of it going around so you know i, I had this captive audience which was an absolutely brilliant thing you were saying there that uh, there wasn't many venues where you could play. Has yeah. that changed now? Has has South Africa got its own blues scene now? Well, uh, yes, but I use I use the term yes very very loosely because you know I think South Africa, as great as it is, I mean I've got a great fan base here and there's, there's great music lovers here. It's it's still in its infancy, the, the music industry. So, I mean, if I compare it to touring in the UK or touring in Europe or touring in the States, I mean, it is leap years behind um, the rest of the world. Um, and the reason I say that is, is because if you take the UK, for instance, you know, you, you get all these different size venues in the UK. So I remember the first time I toured to the UK, I was playing like 50 capacity venues, right, for 50 people. Mm -hmm. And once you get to the point where you can sell that many tickets, you move up to, you know, a bigger size. And there seems to be stepping stones for an artist to kind of, you know, journey through Yeah. Um, in, in yeah. the UK and the States. You know, it's like it's it's venue sizes from 50 and all the way up to, you know, 85,000 people or something like that and, and, and everything in between. But in South Africa, the problem is, is we've got a ton of venues that can do under 100 people. We've got a handful of venues that can do probably about 500 people. And then there's this giant leap. So if you, you know, we're at the point now where we can do those 500 to 1,000 capacity venues. But to to step it up, the next step is 20,000 people. And there's no there's no kind of stepping stones in between. So it's a very very difficult thing to grow in South Africa in a sense in in that. And obviously this this pandemic has you know hurt the industry further. And a lot of these venues have had to shut their doors, unfortunately. Um, just because they couldn't survive over the last, you know, two years or so with with lockdown. So you know, even though it has grown since apartheid, it's certainly not um, anywhere near where the UK, Europe, and the states are. Mm. 
Well, you've led me nicely onto my next question because quite often I will say, what's the most memorable gig in your career? One of the ones you must have had was with Bruce Springsteen in Johannesburg in 2014. That was, Kev, that was, that was one of those, 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 those moments you'll never forget for the rest of your life. I mean, that was surreal. That was the biggest audience I've ever played for. And, you know, if I'm, you know, thinking sensibly and, and honestly, it will probably be the biggest audience I ever will play for. It was 85,000 people and it was unreal playing for that. I mean, you know, as a, as a humble blues musician and blues rock musician, you know, we don't often get to play for, you know, for, for crowds of, of that magnitude and size. And to feel that energy of 84, 85,000 people was, it was like heroin, man. I tell you something, it was, it was, I, I could certainly get used to it, but I told myself, because I think my very, very next show was for 100 people. I think it was two <laughs> days later. So as you think you've hit the big time, you kind of knock right back into into reality but it was it was awesome I, I got to meet bruce and bruce was a surreal fantastic human being he was very hospitable on, on the show and uh you know what made the show even more nerve uh, nerve-wracking was you know that first song you got to kind of come to terms with that you're playing in front of eighty-five thousand people so it's quite nerve-wracking but you know as you play you start getting into it and you start loosening up and then i I made the mistake of looking to the wings of the stage and then I, I saw Bruce Springsteen standing there watching the show and all of a sudden my my nerves, my nerve levels shot to level 3000 again and everything tightened up again because Bruce was watching the show. But, it, but all that aside, it was, it was unreal. The thing that a lot of people probably don't realise is that Bruce Springsteen rarely has guests with him and he asked for mm. you specifically. That that's true. Um, it was um kind of a, a very rare thing to kind of crack the nod for a, a Bruce a Springsteen support, and I kind of understand why because I mean when he gets on stage, he plays for close to three hours, three and a half hours. Um, so I understand why he doesn't need a support. So I was really really honoured to to be invited to be on the show. I mean it was certainly like probably the best moment in my career thus far, and. It was unreal. I mean, just to put it into, into perspective, I mean, we did a sound check that afternoon before they opened the gates to the stadium. And when there was probably about 15,000 people in the stadium, kind of the, the early bird guys that want to get right close up to the stage, mm. because those guys wait around so long for the gig, Bruce came out after our sound check with an acoustic guitar and he played for 45 minutes just to 15,000 people and the people kind of entering the stadium went off stage we did our set for 45 minutes and he came on back on stage with the band and did three hours and it was <laughs> it was remarkable to see someone with that much energy and that much passion for what he does and and performance it was it was unreal talking about rubbing shoulders with rock royalty the year after that you were playing with joe satriani so for me that was you know even though maybe the audiences weren't quite 85,000 people, um, that was almost a little bit more special for me because Joe Satriani was a guy that I grew up listening to. Even though I don't necessarily play the genre that, that Joe plays and, and the style of guitar playing, he was, as a guitar player, he's impossible to ignore as an influence. So I grew up listening to him and, you know, I ended up doing... I think it was 30 dates around Europe and the UK with him. And, you know, that, that was one of those... 
one of those milestone moments uh, once again. And I've been very fortunate, Kev, because, you know, all these artists that I support have just happened to be fantastic human beings and, and pleasant people to be around. Because, you know, I've, I've heard some horror stories from other artists supporting other artists where that's not the case. And, you know, the, the, the main artist they're supporting turns out to be a complete nightmare to work with. And Satriani was the complete opposite of that. Same as Bruce Springsteen. You know, couldn't do enough for us on the road was epic to hang out with made us feel at home and made us feel comfortable and you know you know that makes you perform better because you, you don't feel like you're you know as a support act sometimes you feel like you're you know you're, you're overstaying your welcome or you're you know you're just unwanted by by everyone there you know that that can happen but with with a guy like Joe Satriani that that was never ever the never the feeling from from him um, his band, his crew. And, you know, that was, for me, something to look up to as an artist because, you know, as I said earlier, you know, the, the chances of me ever filling stadiums for 85,000 people for, you know, with the music I play is very unlikely. But, you know, in, inspiring to, to be able to do shows like Joe does, the, you know, the, these beautiful big auditoriums and have the crew that he's got on the road, that was one of the, the, the is still one of the biggest things I inspire to today, career-wise. Well, Joe Bonamassa can fill a stadium, so your time will come, I'm sure. I, I, I'm holding <laughs> thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> but just a, a little curiosity that came up there where you're talking about the, the way some support acts are treated. There's the old urban myth that sometimes the sound guys will make the support act sound worse so that the headline act sound better. Have you ever experienced that? So I've never actually experienced that, but that's, you're right, Kev. I've heard that multiple times, and I've heard that from other artists. Like So um, one of the things I've heard is the support act only gets 70% of the PA, like the front of house PA, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm talking the volume of it, right? So when the support comes on, it's like a, I mean, when the main act comes on, it's a, it's like a, a big explosion and this this, this 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 incredible sound. But um, I've been fortunate enough, like, on the Satriani tour, for instance, we got full use of the PA. In fact, I think halfway through the tour, Joe's front of house guy offered to mix all our shows for us. So we had the same uh, mixing engineer mixing our front of house, uh, that, the same guy that was doing Joe's. So in that sense, I, I've been very lucky and I've never experienced that before. But I've definitely heard from other artists that that is a is a reality um i've heard even to the point of support acts having to use a different front of house pa system like a weaker one and then when the main artist comes on they've they've got this state-of-the-art you know pa system that kind of produces three times the wattage and three times the volume and you know that's where that wow factor comes in Mm. well i think if that is the case the headline acts are very insecure um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about the uh, the music venues in South Africa, how they're few and far between. Uh, recording studios, what's the situation with that over there? Because your 2018 album, Perfection Kills, was recorded in Pretoria, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, so you know, just like venues, I mean, obviously we don't have the amount of studios as the UK and the rest of the world has, but we're very fortunate to have the studios we do have, there's, there's, there's world-class studios here with world-class equipments and world-class recording engineers. Um, so, you know, you kind of got to you know, be in the industry for a while to kind of find out where these are and 
and if they actually exist. But they're, they're they are here, um, and you know I've always said you know once once you find a studio you you gel with you like the sound of the studio you like the engineers you know you kind of stick with it and you know that's been the case since uh, Perfection Kills. I've recorded in that studio in Pretoria, and you know this this uh, this new album has been recorded in the exact same uh, studio. So we're not exactly spoiled for choice, but there's certainly um, quality recording facilities here. Well, we touched on this with other interviewees in the past that every studio has its own sound and feel. You've got Muscle Shoals and. Abbey Road, the big names. So the one in Pretoria that you're using, that's yours now, is it? That's your favourite? Well, I, I wouldn't say my favourite. I mean, it's it's, it's certainly, um, it, it's it's com- very, it's very a great studio, great equipment. It's, you know, very, very close to where I live. So, you know, going in for day sessions when you're recording an album and, and getting home is easy. I don't have to rent hotel rooms and be away from you know, the wife and kids for too long. So that's certainly a factor, but it is a world-class studio. Um, but, you know, I would say, you know, there's there's rooms, you know, in other parts of the world that, you know, are, are far superior. I mean, you know, like, you know, Abbey Roads would, would certainly be one of them. Um, you know, th- th- where, where the rooms have a, a particular flavor and they almost color the album. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you do to the album, it's got that, that Abbey Road magic or color on the album. And you're right, every studio has got that, including this one in Pretoria. But I think, you know, when, when I think of like Abbey Road, for instance, you know, that's a, a very, very special room. Some of the most iconic albums ever have been recorded at, at Abbey Road. And, and it's certainly got that magic factor to it um, that, you know, we all kind of want. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm dead happy with the, the Pretoria studio. You're talking about the magic there of, of various things. As a, a music fan, to me, walking down Beale Street has got a certain magic about it. So you get the same feel when you walk into a studio like Abbey Road. Then. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, the, the, the previous and the past artists who have recorded in there have left, like, uh, you know, <laughs> a bit of energy in the room or a bit of a bit of song in the room or a bit of acoustics in the room or something like that. I mean... You you kind of get that feel, you know. You know, I've I personally never had the privilege of going to Abbey Road Studio, but a, a good example of of that magic in a room is when 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 I come across to the UK, I I rehearse at a place called John Henry's in London, where you know over the last I don't know forty years, you know some of the biggest artists in the world have have rehearsed there. They, they used uh, you know John Henry's as a rehearsal space, and. Um, I've got to know John himself very, very well, and he normally gives me the room that that Gary Moore used to rehearse in for, you know, probably twenty years. And I don't know if it's uh, a placebo effect or something like that, but I certainly feel a magic when I walk into that rehearsal space, right? Because I've known, I know that you know Gary Moore spent twenty years of his life rehearsing in that particular room, and 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 all these bands like Thin Rizzy and. And I mean, just you name it, have have rehearsed in this room, and it just you, you feel you feel some sort of energy in that room. And as I said, that could be a complete placebo effect, and 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 it's just because they told me um, these guys rehearsed in the room. But regardless of that, I feel something, right? And it, it, it's magical. So I can only imagine the feeling uh, recording in 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 a place like uh, Abbey Road. Yeah. Well, on Perfection Kills, you produced that one. 
using all the tricks of the trade that you picked up over the years from other people, what's the what's the one best piece of advice that you picked up over the years? Well, it's really about serving the song, you know. So I'm coming, you know. Remember, I came from purely like this guitar-driven thing, and I mean, sure, my music's still guitar-driven. It's obviously evident on the new album, on Perfection Kills, on all these albums, but working with great producers in the past you know they, they you know they always used to tell uh, say to me would you rather have a, a great guitar solo on an average song or a great guitar solo on a great song and that really hit home for me and so what i do is you know when, when i when i've started self-producing which have been you know perfection kills and, and my new album a shelter of bones that is the the main thing that I kind of focus on um, when pre-producing the album, producing the album, is that everything played on any instrument, if it's sung, whatever the case is, it has to serve the song because the song has to be king at the end of the day. And, you know, it's a tough thing when you self-produce, especially as a guitar player, because you have to wear two completely separate hats. You've got to wear the performer uh, hats, you know, like the performing artist hats, the singer's hat, the guitar player's hat. And then you've got to take that hat off and put the producer hat on very, very often to listen to this, to what you've just done and say, yes, that might be you know great for my own ego or, or, or great from a guitar playing standpoint, but is it the right thing for the particular song? Is it too long? Is it too out there? Is it too loud? Is it, you know, whatever the case is. So for me, that was a big learning curve for me on Perfection Kills because it was one of the first self-produced albums I, I did was always putting that producer hat on or that third-party hat and, 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 and trying to listen with non-musician ears in a sense where is the song speaking to me and was the part I just played appropriate for the song or is it just an ego-driven part? I suppose the other thing you have to learn or... I suppose you'll learn it as a musician is when to walk away when the song is done. No more tweaking. Woo! You know what, Kev? That is one of the that is such a good point. I almost find that I never ever finish a song. I kind of abandon the song eventually. You know, you kind of you know it, it's an art form. So there's never a there's, there's not like a manual of like right once you know x y and z is done the song will be done you know it's i've never ever gotten to that point in any song i could always work harder on it i could always change things but you know it gets to the point where you can start hurting the song and also you know you want to actually release something at some point in your life so you know you could work on an album for 10 10 years so i find i end up abandoning the songs rather than finishing the songs so do you have someone that you can turn to and they will say no Dan, that sounds fine just leave it well, you know, I kind of rely on, um, you know, a, a, as as extra ears because extra ears is super important. I rely on, you know, my band members who, you know, obviously I'm, I'm paying session fees on the album, I'm, but you know, I still rely on their ears. I'll, I'll, you know, send them the track and say, what do you honestly think about this? Does does something need to change? Is this melody strong enough? Is the mix okay? I mean, there's there's so many there's so many different elements. So I rely on that, and then also probably one of the most important people I rely on is my wife because my wife will listen to music like most people listen to music. I, I always say musicians listen to music in a very different way, and it's a complete curse because you know I just want to listen to music and enjoy the music. Instead of trying to analyze the, you know, you know the, the inner musician of you is always analyzing things like 
you know, you know what what's happening in the solo scale wise and and melodically and and harmonically what's happening in the song and you know music really shouldn't be listened to like that it's just a it's almost the musician's curse so um you know obviously i try and get into that headspace when listening as a producer but i always will get my wife to listen to it she's into good music but she's not a musician so she always listens with a, a very open ear um uh she she listens like everyone else is going to listen to a music fan is going to listen to and that's at the end of the day who i want to repeat uh, appeal to i don't want to i'm not making music only for you know guitar players or or whatever the case is i want people to enjoy the music i want songs to do something to people um and you know my wife is unfortunately brutally honest and it, it annoys me sometimes but it is literally the best thing for me ever because you know she might just say that song's no good or i don't like it or because of this that and the next thing and at first i'm like you don't know what you're talking about this is this is this is great but you know when i kind of breathe a little bit and listen to it you know very often i'll I'll, I will start hearing what she's hearing and go, you know, what? she's got a she's got a very, very good point. And then, you know, then I can go change things. You know, and it's all 99 percent of the time. It's for the better. Yeah. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but we've not even touched on your new album yet. So the, the new album was that recorded during lockdown or as lockdown hit? Well, this that, that's that's quite an interesting question. It was recorded over a three-year period. So the original recordings were done in I think July of 2019, um, and you know, I, you know, I had a, a co-producer in with me uh, producing, and I got so involved with the smaller nuts and bolts of the album, you know, that I wasn't listening to the songs and and the general vibe and direction of the album. So um, I took a, a break after we kind of finished recording the album, listened back to it and realized that even though it was a good album, it wasn't the right album. It was it, it had gone too far outside of what I do and what people know me for. So apart from two or three songs, I re-recorded the album at the end of 2019 um, in, in the way to, as a, a self-produced you know to i was happy with it but it was done in quite quite a rush because we had to get this album out by 2020 and then obviously covid hits and it was very difficult to release an album because you can't tour the album um so we held the album back and then they gave me an opportunity to really listen to everything on the album and go fix re-record and you know just tweak everything that i was unhappy with um and that that was done on the third recording session and you know and that's what shelter of bones is now that's the you know w w what the final product was so in a way as frustrating as it as it was it was the most time i've ever had to um you know spend time on the songs the production the recording all the sort of stuff so it was a blessing in that sense and you're going to be touring to promote that album. That must be a joy as well to be back out on the road. Wow, it's uh, it's almost surreal to be to be able to do this again. It really, really is. It's um, you know I've, I've literally sat in my home studio for the last two years. Apart from the odd tiny gig I've done in South Africa, where we've you know it's it's you know it's slightly opened up out of lockdown. Um, it's just going to be surreal just to play in front of live human beings again. Uh, play new songs, you know, play with my UK band again that I haven't, you know, played with since 2019. So, man, I, I can't, I can hardly contain the excitement, the level of excitement, you know, for, for, for touring and playing live again. 
with having so much time on your hands over the past two years, have you already got material for the next album? I have. I mean, I, I wouldn't say a lot, but I mean, I, I've probably got five or six songs already written for, for the next album. Um, I'll probably be going into studio at the end of the year um, to record the next album. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, time has certainly not been, you know, uh, yeah, I certainly haven't had a shortage of time, especially for being creative and writing and, and all that sort of thing. So I, I, I've got a great head start for, for, for the next one. Well, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Like I say, I could talk for hours. And uh, thank you for taking the time out to do this. Well, Kev, I really enjoyed that, man. It was a great interview and, and great questions. And thank you so much for your time. And I hope you enjoyed that little interview there. And there will be more as we record more for the show. And we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So plenty more to come. And of course, if you want to hear the whole show... There is always listen again. I'll see you next time. Take care.